Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This is a logbook entry from April 1984. It's a printed press release from Gaze the Word bookshop, taped into the logbook by a switchboard volunteer. Lesbian gay community bookshop raided. On Tuesday, April 10th, 1984, officials from HM Customs and Excise raided Gaze the Word bookshop, 66 Marchmont Street, WC1. They left with over 800 books. Gaze the Word is unique in London as a serious bookshop catering for the lesbian and gay men's communities. It stocks a wide range of biography, history, political and social books besides fiction and poetry. Its directors take no profit from the business, stating their primary objective as improving the accessibility of literature for and by lesbians and gay men. The customs officials detained the shop two workers, Amanda Russell and Paul Hegarty, denying them access to legal advice. They took off the shelves. All the books imported from the United States, eventually moving from the premises a third of the bookshop stock. During the course of the day, two of the shop's directors were questioned and had their home searched. Amanda Russell's home was also searched, personal belongings removed from two of the houses. The raid has shocked the lesbian and gay men's communities. It is considered an arbitrary and crude form of censorship. It's also seen as indicative of an escalation from harassment of individual lesbian and gay men to the groups and organisations set up by us. The response has been angry and swift. The Defend Gays the Word campaign was launched by a meeting of 200 people at County Hall on Sunday, 15th April afternoon. This is madness. It's, I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine just being in the a bookshop waiting for customers to come in, and then a whole bunch come in, and well, they're not customers; they're law enforcement taking your books away. It's yeah, it's just insane. You know, this is someone's shop, their livelihood, and having a shop raided. It feels to me like when I first heard this law book entry, something much more similar to you know the Oscar Wilde's era. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's. It is like something from the Victorian period. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting as well. You know, we're, this is in the eighties. We think about now, twenty twenty. This just absolutely doesn't happen here in the UK. But of course, that is just you know very much a Western experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think it's worth us acknowledging that across the world, so many LGBTQIA plus people are are having their work censored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. And I'm Tash Walker. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1983 and 1991. Episode 10, Crude Form of Censorship. In this episode, we're going to be hearing about actions of the state to stop people from seeing things that were considered obscene. 
we're going to hear stories from someone whose erotic magazines were seized, a lesbian who had to account for her imports of pictures of men giving each other a blowjob, and one person who was running the campaign that sprung into action after Gay's The Word Bookshop was raided by customs in 1984. What customs were interested in was what they termed indecent, but it soon transpired that they regarded anything gay and lesbian as indecent. So, and that included novels, poetry, sociological research. It included the joy of gay sex and the joy of lesbian sex. It included novels, it included poetry, it included W.H. Auden and Gore Vidal and Verlaine and a 14th century devotional work by a nun and on and on it went really I mean just unbelievable unbelievable this is a logbook entry from July 16th 1984 another confiscation of lesbian and gay US imports customs and excise have written to Balham Food Co-op informing them they have seized their latest order Caller from Ballam Food Co-op has contacted Paul at Gaze the Word and got info regarding their campaign. But Ballam Food Co-op can't afford the huge solicitors' fees involved and Gaze the Word have taken the fight as far as Defence Fund is concerned. So he didn't know if they'll be fighting customs and excise. What is the fucking state doing? The customs have been seizing books for, for a long time, from imported books. So they'd seized books from Gay News because uh, Gay News had a mail order service. By and large, Gay News just let it ride because it was expensive to go to court. I'm Graham McCarrow. I'm 65 and I was one of the coordinators of the Defend Gays the Word campaign in the 1980s. They took away thousands of books um, and later they issued seizure notices um, and they did it in stages. So they started with a seizure notice for some and then they got more and more. In the end, I think there were 144 titles and about 2,000 books. And one can imagine the value of those. You know, if you think each book's worth, what, £5, £10 or something, more, you know. So we're talking tens of thousands of pounds worth of stock that's been just taken. And there was a whole range of, you know, what, what the books were. The shop, you know, was set up with political and social purposes. It was a gay and feminist bookshop. So it had a policy of no racist, sexist or pornographic material. And they had long debates about what, what was pornography and what wasn't. But so there was sexually explicit material, certainly, but not pornography. Yeah, Operation Tiger, I mean, this sort of ludicrously macho name that they'd given was sort of, was farcical. I mean, they, I mean, for a start, I don't know, we were used to police raids. You know, the police would generally turn up in their uniforms, you know, and we've all seen customs officers in uniforms at airports and docks and things. But these were people in, you know, patterned shirts and and just casual clothes and it was very odd and they they didn't know what they were doing they hadn't heard of you know the serious authors they they had never heard of Verlaine you know they had no idea they were used to dealing with magazines with photographs not books with pictures with, with words so they were having to ask Port Hegarty the shop manager what was in the books so first of all he had to help them divide the 
the imported books from the, the books published in this country because they have no jurisdiction over books published in the UK. Um, being customs, they only dealt with importations. And then they wanted to know from him what was in the books. So it was just sort of, it, they were farcically incompetent right from the beginning. I remember mixed feelings. One, of course, was, was complete outrage at the, the, the intolerable infringement of, of personal liberty and the right to choose one's own reading, but also the merciful aspects of people seizing books which they clearly had no idea whatsoever were amongst the standard texts of canonical English literature. There was no knowledge there. So, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde or E.M. Forster was as likely to be seized as, uh, you know, Tom Finland. So that's what I mainly remember. The mixture of outrage, uh, this is, you know, the, the, the assault um, on intellectual freedom, and the patheticness of doing it so badly. That was Alison Hennigan, who had been the literary editor of Gay News. What would you have done, though, Adam? If I was a bookseller. Mm. I did used to be a bookseller. Oh. And uh, the shops that I worked in never got raided um, by customs. Um, just by people who like really rampantly needed Harry Potter books. Um, <laughs> they would come in at midnight on the launches uh, when the new books were released. That's um, amazing. I actually um, worked at a bookshop as well in, in Oxfam. Um, my job was pricing the rare books upstairs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did you like decide to price some of them really low so that you could then buy it? Uh, I will not put any of that on record. Okay. <laughs> it is crazy though, imagining just being there in the bookshop, which are usually like pretty quiet places, and then suddenly like a whole bunch of people coming in. Um, They're a refuge, I think, bookshops. They are. They're just but, yeah. full of possibility and opportunity and... And obscenity. And obscenity, it seems. But the thing is that, like, you would just not imagine that this is what was happening when that was unfolding. Customs officers coming in and saying, right, we need to seize 2,000 books here. And you need to tell us where is your Govardhan, where is your Oscar Wilde. <laughs> um, and you need to tell us what's in them and we're going to take them all away. I don't know what I would have done. I don't think there's anything that you there's could do. There's nothing that you could do. Just you have to let that happen. I guess the next logical step is to start fighting back. That's right. And there were, of course, nine people at Gaze the Word who did fight back, but they don't like to speak individually. So that's why we've spoken to Graham McCarrow, who was one of the people running the campaign and like somewhat of a spokesperson for the campaign. We've got more from Graham coming up. This is a logbook entry from April 11th, 1984. Gaze the Word defence meeting, 3pm County Hall. Ask at desk for room booked in name of Andy Harris. Gaze the Word Bookshop informs us that the Capital Gay story on the raid this week will ask readers to contact us for details. Gaze the Word and Operation Tiger, the raid happened on the Tuesday. We had it in the paper on the Friday and there was a public meeting in County Hall on the Sunday. The meeting happened, it set up a defence campaign, it set up a defence fund, and so, you know, within less than a week, there was a properly organised defence happening. Uh, community was involved, the word was out there, and I think it, initially it had something like 500 quid. I mean, I didn't join the campaign till February 86, so, you know, the raids were in April 84, so it was two years I joined as a coordinator. There was already one coordinator, David Northmore. And um, he and I worked downstairs in the basement under Gaze the Word. 
and in this windowless office, uh, which they kindly painted sky blue to brighten it up and remind us what we were missing upstairs. The defendants were dealing with the legal defence, so they were in meetings with lawyers and so forth, and our brief was to organise a political and media campaign. And, uh, and I'd done all sorts of demonstrations. I'd zapped pubs and I'd you know, been on kissings and pickets and demonstrations and, and challenged pub licenses and all sorts of stuff, but I'd never actually run a campaign like this before. So it was a question of you know, finding out on the job how to do it. Logbook entry. 10th August 1985. Volunteers called Beta. Gaze the word trial. They have been committed this afternoon on all hundred charges. Trial will be at Old Bailey. No date set yet. Probably 1986. Customs get to keep all the seized books until the trial. The magistrate said committed homosexuals might hold that a detailed account of homosexual behavior was a legitimate thing. The question is not what homosexuals think, but what others might think. This is logbook entry 29th of December 1985. You read it first here. Case the word trial has been fixed for October 6, 1986, at the Old Bailey, and will run for some six to eight weeks. So the sequence on the placard now, folks. I love that call to arms at the end. So the sequence on the placards now, <laughs> folks. Yeah, and it's just crazy to imagine that these nine people would be going to trial for this you know and um, imagining like how would that trial unfold what would the the legal defense be what would they be saying what would witnesses be saying in the box about these books it feels like a play doesn't it it does yeah yeah but of course it's it's serious stuff these defendants were all on the line yeah exactly and the bookshop as well like this is gaze the word is still a super important like location and and you know part of the lgbtq plus community uh, in the UK and in London and uh, it, it you know was totally important in 1984-85. I remember going to Gaze the Word you know not in the 80s you know in the 90s but it was like a big it was a big step for me I thought it was an amazing place. One of the great things about this story is that nine of them committed together and said like look we're the people who run Gaze the Word and we're going to stand up against this together and fight this. As a community because yeah. at the end of the day this is a really really big statement against the LGBTQ plus community yeah. and that's how we have to respond. Yeah exactly. So it's totally serious, but on the other hand, it sounds like from Graham, the campaign had quite a little bit of fun with this as well. There was this one guy came in and he said he'd like to help and asked him what he'd like to do. And he said, and he, you know, had that surprised look on his face and said, well, I'll do anything you want. You know, I'll, you know, I'll make the tea, I'll hand out leaflets, I'll collect money, whatever. And I said, yeah, but what would you like to do? And he kind of looked really confused. And I said, OK, so what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a, I work in the theatre. And I said, well, what do you do in the theatre? And he said, I'm a director. And I said, really? You're a theatre director? That's interesting. What do, you, what do you direct? And he kind of started talking to me in a monotone as though this was all irrelevant. He said, well, I, 
you know, I, I direct comedies and tragedies and Shakespeare and musicals and all sorts of stuff. I, I work at the, you know, Stratford East. And I said, um, you direct musicals? And he said, uh, yes. And there was long pause and he said, why do you want a musical? And I said, I'd love a musical. I just thought I was thrilled at the idea of a musical. I thought it was so gay and so funny and it could be so political and it would send them up and it would, the whole idea was we wanted to, we wanted publicity and we wanted to humiliate customs and we wanted to raise money and you know, a musical just ticked every single box that was going. And he said, oh, well, that would be easy. Uh, he said, I've got so-and-so who can act. I've got so-and-so who can do this. I've got so-and-so who can play the trumpet. I've got somebody else who's a great lyricist. Give me a few days. I'll come back next week. I'll let you know how I'll get on. And he came back the next day and he said, I've got a band. I've got a cast. It's going to be at the <laughs> Piccadilly Theatre and we're going to call it Operation Tiger, the musical. I just love this idea of a musical about this crazy uh, caper. Uh, yeah, I mean, come on, it sounds amazing. I can feel like your excitement right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I have a little surprise for you because um, because I knew we were going to be talking about this. And so I was riding my bike and I was composing <laughs> oh my in my head. What would a song from Operation Tiger the musical be oh like? Oh my God, I'm so unprepared for this. <laughs> So I was thinking, like, imagine the scene, you know, curtains open. There's a lonely bookseller just waiting for customers all day long. Oh, my God. Um, I've been there. And then suddenly, like, all these people burst in. And, uh, you know, the lights the lights change. The orchestra starts. Bookshop rush. It's a bookshop rush. 22 <laughs> customers. It's practically a crush. One wants Verlaine. One wants Oscar Wilde. He wants Gore Vidal. He's really rather mild. Bookshop rush. It's a bookshop rush. 22 customers. It's practically a crush. You might be interested in this little old text because I think that you came here for books about sex. Oh my the God. author's in the habit of doing it like a rabbit. The rabbit so hot it's like the center of the sun yes it's a devotional text from a 14th century oh nun bookshop rush it's a bookshop rush 22 <laughs> customers it's practically a crush that's as far as i go oh my god shout out the nun <laughs> adam i i feel so overwhelmed with emotion um and just i think what i'm experiencing right now is just pure joy so right. thank you very much right. musical trembles what, yes. a, what a preview we are huge fans of musical theatre here at the Logbooks podcast. <laughs> and if anyone wants to um, collaborate on that, then, oh, you yeah, know. 100%. Yeah, let's do it. Somewhere in someone's bottom drawer, there's a musical called Operation Tiger, the musical. It may be half written. It may be further on than that. I don't know. It would be nice to hear from you. Let's get back to it. So, <laughs> Switchboard and Gays the Word were all part of this bigger LGBTQ plus community and they supported each other. Gays the yes. Word always had Switchboard's number and leaflets and little bookmarks uh, po posted around the bookshop and, and put into the different books mm -hmm. um, that were up on the shelves. I think it still is the case today um, that the volunteers at Switchboard get a Gays the Word discount. That's amazing. Yeah, That's so good. it's amazing. That's so good. But shall we get back to the Gays the Word raid? That's right, because we know that the trial date was set for the defendants, so now we have to move to the next stage in the story. 
this is a press release from the well I would have thought it was from the Defend Gays the Word campaign but it just says from Gays the Word on the 27th of June 1986 HM Customs and Excise today agreed formally to withdraw their action against Gays the Word and its nine directors and to drop all criminal charges arising from the infamous Operation Tiger this brings to an end almost two and a half years of customs harassment and represents a magnificent and total victory for the Defend Gays the Word campaign. Customs have finally admitted that the laws governing the importation of books are now in total disarray and have given Gays the Word an undertaking that from now on imported books will be treated in exactly the same way as books published in the UK. This humiliating decision results from a realisation at ministerial level that current customs law in the area of literature is totally unworkable. Gaze the Word will definitely start importing literally hundreds of titles published in the US since 1984 and which have been denied to British readers because of customs threat. It is absolutely clear that this major gay rights victory would quite simply not have been possible without the overwhelming support we have received. The knowledge that the community was 100% behind us kept us going when things looked pretty bad and there were a lot of times like that. And then, yes, scribble from a volunteer. This is the best present for lesbian and gay people we could possibly have. Linda. Nobody thought that anything was going to stop the trial at the Old Bailey. The campaign was gearing up and we were doing everything we could to get publicity and they will have been reading the media and knowing what we were doing. They suddenly dropped all the charges. They returned all the books, most of them to gaze the word, some of them abroad, but they didn't even send a fact check. <laughs> there was no fact check. Um, but the defendants were delighted. Um, a, it was an end to the trial, so personally they were they were safe. B, it was a total victory because the books were all returned and it just showed that customs had been wrong all along. We'd been saying that, you know, the law was a, an ass and it showed that it was. Most of the books were returned to the shop to be for sale. A few were sent back. The ones that were sent back were the ones that customs said they thought contravened domestic obscenity legislation so well there was champagne in the in the shop uh, initially there was a big party at at the hippodrome in leicester square and it was pride it was it was the anniversary of the stonewall riots that they uh, that they dropped the charges the 26th of june and that year the pride march was on the 4th of july i think so uh, or the 5th of july and so uh, it became the big celebration for Pride. The, and the case was dropped for three main reasons. The first one is the one that Graham mentioned, which is that the campaign had been putting pressure on customs and prosecutors. Then the second reason, you've got this new government minister who wanted to make their mark and were doing that by reviewing cases, dropping any outstanding problem cases that they didn't want to inherit. And the third one is the most interesting from a legal point of view. It was this case called Conegate, which was a company which was importing uh, sex dolls uh, and sex toys into the UK. And the customs seized those. The 
case went to the European courts, which ruled that because those sex toys could have been made in the UK, uh, they should have been able to be sold in the UK as well. Um, And that was like a European single market uh, case, basically. So the customs couldn't stop them being imported into the UK um, because they could have been made in the UK in the first place. So that then took the wind out of the sails of the government's case against the importation of these obscene books. Yeah. And I, I think it sort of harks back a bit to the, the Ballam Food Co-op that we were, you know, we heard earlier and the customs making seizures there. Yeah. And it's just giving yeah. us a bit of a context on what's going on in this period of time in the 80s, where the state is ta- starting to take a, a view on what a person should or should not be able to see. Which is the thing that we've seen in all these conversations and stories about Section 28, about uh, public authorities not promoting homosexuality in with books in libraries and stuff like that. It wasn't always the books that were seized. It was lots of other types of material that were considered obscene by the state. We found this logbook entry from September 1991, which is entitled Ob hyphen seen out question mark. And seen out was the this monthly lesbian and gay magazine, which was being heavily censored from left, right and centre, specifically for reproducing a copy of a pioneering safe sex poster with an image of one man sucking off another and carrying the message, sucking OK, take it out before he comes. And this press release that was in the logbooks has this quote from the lesbian editor Lee Allen who says, all we're trying to do is help promote an important safe sex message, but we end up getting banned. Even some gay outlets have refused to stock this magazine issue. Are we still so closeted after all these years? It's sickening. When I then went on to volunteer at Switchboard and helped with the HIV liaison work there, we did one of the first um, lesbians and sexual health leaflets and we did a lot of work around um, promoting positive images and um, we had an international exhibition of HIV posters aimed at gay men um, I was visited by um, customs and excise on that because I was going to be charged with importing pornography. Uh, But luckily they dropped the case. Hi, I'm Sally. I'm a parent and a lesbian and a vegetarian. Working in sexual health, it's really important to look at how you are putting your messages across, particularly within the gay male community. So uh, vanilla, very safe images, the people holding hands in silhouettes in the distance is not going to work. So we wanted to show what was happening around the world in terms of explicit, direct messages which were going to be more relevant to people. Um, particularly some of the posters from Germany and Australia. So we gathered together a range of these posters for our exhibition and it was one of the German posters that I had delivered which um, created a storm because it was two chaps having oral sex and apparently in one of them the penis was at the wrong angle and therefore it was contravening whatever law it was. Um, So Customs and Excise visited me and said, um, you know, this is borderline pornographic, and I explained to them what it was for, and a little bit about me, and that I would not at all be interested in whatever two chaps might be getting up to. Um, And um, they dropped the case, and we had the exhibition, and we got, Full page coverage in Time Out, which was very nice and helpful. This is a logbook entry from September the 24th, 1991. 
The volunteer who took the call was Rupert. Caller from Bristol reported that customs at Bristol Airport had nabbed him for importing videos, driven him back to his home, searched and seized the videos, taken him back to the airport and fined him £700 on the spot, saying the case would be closed if he paid up. Blimey. Do customs officers have unlimited powers? Anyone know if this is legal? Added by Glenn, uh, customs have very draconian powers, in some ways more power than the police. For example, they can search and take away material without a warrant. The -the on-the-spot fine is a new and alarming development. So it was all going on in Bristol. Yeah, where I've spent a couple of years of my life. In fact, that's where I got into working for LGBT helplines, working for the Bristol Switchboard. Aha. Were you also importing uh, VHS pornos? Only in my spare time. <laughs> How did you get your porn? I remember taping stuff off the TV, the late night Channel 5 erotic uh, dramas that they, that, that they had. And I also remember a private shop in my hometown, Cleethorpes, you know, it was one of those like um, shops with like no frontage and it just literally said private shop. And I knew that that contained material that was like taboo or obscene. And definitely when I was like younger and a bit more Victorian in my attitudes, I used to think that like, oh God, that was kind of like scary and gross and bad and stuff. And that was because that was how it was presented. Yeah, totally. The echoes of this period of time sort of bleeding into... Yeah the 90s and the noughties but I think it's really important to think about what this material is especially for LGBTQ plus people in a world in the 80s and the 90s where it was it was censored you know often it's a person's first step or uh you know the first door that they open into having a sexual life or understanding their sexual identity more yeah so we've got another story coming up from Neil Cavalier Smith who was a switchboard volunteer. Right, and was also one of the founders of Prowler Press, which was making gay magazines with nudie pics, uh, not porn, with the explicit aim of normalising gay life and gay bodies by getting those magazines into mainstream news agents. We learnt that most of the news agents in the country belonged to somebody called either Singh or Patel, and they didn't really mind much what was on the top shelf so long as it sold, so it was really a question of using commerce rather than politics to get it in there and once they saw how well things sold well my name is neil cavalier smith i was a volunteer at switchboard in the late 80s and early 90s we had a warehouse in highgate village where i happened to live by then um, and peter lived that did our subscriptions in our mail order and we had added books from the gay men's press and we were bringing across underwear from the US. We had this warehouse where we were dispatching a a van load a day by, you know, within a few years, you know, the business came to turn over millions. Uh, We we had a very intimate relationship with our customers. We understood that for some of the customers, a lot of the older customers, um, they were perhaps not in a relationship. Um, This is before the internet. And so we became there relationship we became their sexual outlet and all the people who worked for us understood that this was an important mission when you're packing an order it matters whether you put in a you're a boy or a hunk because the person waiting at the other end is literally waiting for this to drop onto their map because matt because that's their sex life this weekend Um, and we've we took that we took that mission with real pride and passion completely unashamedly we had an alarm system that was connected to the police station and it went off and the police came and the policewoman who came in 
took one look at everything we had and, and called the station and they all came piling down there and emptied the entire warehouse out into their vans and took the whole lot away. Because the police were still stuck in the mindset that gay was dirty, that gay was illegal, that gay was bad. And as a sexual liberation campaign, we were obviously first in the firing line. And we struggled to explain that this was perfectly legal stuff. And they just couldn't understand it, even though right on the shelves next to them was was identical heterosexual stuff. The only difference was that ours contained men and theirs contained women. You know, there were magazines like Big Ones, um, and I'm talking about tits here rather than men. Uh, and we weren't even showing erections in those days. It was very mild, charming erotica with stories of you know, people meeting, you know, sailors coming on leave and plumbers being seduced. It was all real-life scenario stuff. I feel that the establishment at that time viewed homosexuality as dangerous, as bad, as dirty. I suppose I see a connection in the sense of an intense unwillingness in certain sections of British society to acknowledge that change is happening and has happened. So, I, I, uh, and of course, it was very much tied in with the particular unpleasant personality of the woman who thought it was Trader Gorman, wasn't it? Who did most to get Section 28 through. She was a very, very nasty piece of work. And she expressed her delight and pleasure uh, at the arson attack on the Capitol Gay offices. She was a toxic piece of work, absolutely toxic. Um, but I think she's representative of a particular stratum in British society, which is usually just a nasty mess about all aspects of sex and sexuality, and is also particularly frightened of, of any um, way of life or any um, pattern of ethical codes which challenge their own. So this was the beginning of the 90s, and if you could picture the scene after we'd been raided, and the warehouse is empty of stock, uh, none of which is going to be much use to us two months down the line because we'll have published our next magazines and our next magazines, except that it was so much stock that it really did threaten the survival of the company and the livelihoods of the 30 or so people that we employed at the time. Fortunately, uh, Stonewall had just started and was able to help us out we were big supporters of Stonewall and they now did us a solid by Angela Mason took me for tea at the House of Commons with Barbara Roach my MP who was a big supporter of gay rights and one of the sponsors of the Age of Consent Bill um, and over a very motherly conversation in the House of Commons there were four tarts and we had one each and then there was one left and they both sort of shoved it towards me and said go on dear we know you want it and yes we'll help you get your magazines back and so Barbara Roach uh, managed to persuade the police that they had acted outside the law rather than us, um, and the magazines were returned. There were a couple of prosecutions for poppers around the same time, early 90s, where poppers wasn't a drug, it wasn't listed as a, as a substance, but they again wanted to oppress the gay community and so they dredged the bottle, bottom of the barrel of legislation 
Uh, if I remember rightly, one of them was the Zipper Store in Camden, another was the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, and the judge in one of those cases certainly handed down a sentence of something like £18.12. So he found them guilty, but, can, but, but fined them £18.12, which was the year of the legislation. And so that was a comment from the judge, which was that he had no choice but to find the case guilty, but it was bloody ridiculous. And that's how the establishment started to make their feelings that this was oppression rather than actual... Um, and you could feel things starting to shift when that started to happen. We first heard of that raid at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in episode three, on the height of hostility due to HIV AIDS. The establishment was maybe changing, as Neil suggests. In, in our period that we're looking at in this season, 1983 to 1991, but also before and, and since, the British state has taken a really close interest in deciding what its citizens should and should not see. And one thing that few could have dreamed of in that period is the internet <laughs> that yeah. we have today and um, you know it's the power to publish almost anything and see almost anything wherever you are so we wanted to bring this theme up to date by thinking about where are the boundaries of taste and obscenity today and who is policing them yeah and, and for example in russia right now there's this case against queer artist yulia svetkova who was arrested during 2019 for drawing body positive pictures of female reproductive organs which were deemed to be production and dissemination of pornographic materials which is illegal there and remember again um, episode three in mm -hmm. season one where we spoke to the people behind Aphrodite's club night whose posters featuring the naked goddess Aphrodite kept getting censored and deleted on social media so censorship remains to bring us up to date, we spoke to Martha, who is part of the volunteer collective behind Fringe, East London's Queer Film and Arts Fest, and Ezra, who starts this section. I'm an artist who has an online platform on Instagram called Break, Blow, Burn with an eight. And I make Polaroids and poems, short poems that are erotic and sexual. And beside that, I'm also a doctorate student in literature. I started a a year or two years ago doing uh, erotic Polaroids. And for me, that came, that project came from, first of all, being a sex worker and wanting to take care of myself. And, and so I moved from, from sex working um, and, you know, like physically with people to something where I could keep using my body politically and sexually in a way that would give me more space for myself. I've always been interested in in any sorts of, of art and, and writing and, and photographs. And so I, I ended up combining Polaroids with, with poems. And for me, one of the best platforms to have visibility was Instagram. My account was actually deleted seven times. And so the first time that a, one of my pictures was deleted was a small Polaroid on which you could see pubic hair and an open jeans with just the pubic hair coming out of it so there was no sexual organ visible there was nothing that was remotely close to to pornography or to anything properly sexual or nudes and it was just hair and this picture was immediately deleted within the five seconds and then after that i tried to repost it and that's one of the few pictures that i was never able to to post which is ridiculous 
compared to to other accounts on which you can see nudity, but unfortunately, most of the time, um, straight and you know idealized kind of beauties, uh, nudity and sexualized women for the for the male gaze, and mostly skinny white people who are gender normative. And so, so that was the first time that, that the picture got deleted. I felt really frustrated, mostly because you have no way of getting into your dialogue with the person of, well, with the, the person of the, the computer in front of you, because the message that you get, you, you, you have no way of replying to, to it. The only thing that you can do is click on a button that says, this was a mistake. And you get an automatic email saying that they will take a request into consideration but that's it you only dialogue with automatic answers and so i remember being really frustrated um, and as someone who is very vocal and very activist um, in terms of queerness i know that the second thing that i felt was just anger and just feeling you know like not only frustrated but as an artist you know feeling muted and not being able to 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 do what i do Hi, I'm Martha, one of the heads of festival for Fringe Queer Film and Arts Fest. Well, as a film festival exhibitor um, running a queer film fest, we have to think of quite a lot and kind of um, navigate a few things to be able to show the content that we want to show. One of the things, obviously, we in cinemas are kind of restricted and it's not super clear what the rules are there because it can differ you know, from an indie to a larger institution, and also whether they will be aware fully of the content kind of makes a difference as well. But for us, because we're able to make our own hub, that's the space where we can we can have a bit more freedom. But there's also certain things that are unclear within that. What is porn? What is just a sexual content in a film? What's just a narrative film with unsimulated sex? You can see that people showing art have way less restriction in that sense, um, just as they do with like licensing and things. Uh, they are kind of able to kind of go over those concerns, whereas I think there's just uh, much more of a, a legal presence in exhibition, in film exhibition, and yet a lot of the exhibitors don't seem to know exactly what those rules are. With bigger films, where we follow the, the industry practices as normal, we can do that. It's quite easy to observe certain things within um, within our own space. With other aspects of the programme, we can treat it as art or we can treat it as performance. And then the rules are based on the actual effects to an audience. So as long as you're aware and sensitive to people's responses, I think it's it makes a lot more sense if you're able to that level of control. We are showing maybe 20 films with sexual content each year, short films, for free, that are people's true like explorations, people you know where there isn't sexual convention trying to create new and honest um, experiences or or description or depictions of sex and it's all pretty much ethically regulated right by a community that sort of self-polices so it's knowing that there is better content and that also the people who are making it are working and deserve to have it at the least seen so it feels like pretty important 
work to get it to people. And also because you know that there's nothing in it that's more explicit and certainly nothing in it that's damaging compared to mass culture. After being censored by Instagram, I decided to move on OnlyFans because that was a space where I could finally put some content without being censored. And also for me, it was practical because at the same time, I wanted the, the, the full nudity to be somehow private and accessible, not to everyone, to the people who uh, consented to seeing it. But again, we can feel the same kind of, of problems sliding in from Instagram to OnlyFans. People, you would hear stories of people who, who starts talking about OnlyFans, either censoring people or sliding from the content of sex workers to a content that is more mainstream or more popular. OnlyFans is slowly shifting their image towards something that is closer to a platform that can be compared to YouTube, for example, where you would ha you would find videos of people discussing their arts, discussing their their music, or showing private content, or or you know exclusive content, for example. I know that a lot of our friends in the community and um, and peers have have had their you know their their whole work. They've lost huge amounts of money just because of the threats of Google who've been riled up in a culture war. So these things are really still able to affect people. And actually, every time that you exhibit something, it could be that someone feigns outrage and shuts it down. And actually, we have no control over that. And actually, the comparison with uh, with censorship of a of a bookstore is is very accurate because for me. Today, I see um, online platforms, especially for people who have art galleries or businesses, I see online platforms as some sort of, of stores. The pictures that you put on, on Instagram, for example, uh, are basically your, your window shop. And anyone who gets their accounts deleted or their content deleted is, to me, equivalent to someone coming to your, to your store, your shop, and shutting it down. And we have seen a lot of um, Instagram users who have a, a store online who have lost all the customers, all their visibility, just because their account was deleted. In the future, I do hope censorship will be lifted and that people will be able to express their gender and bodies and sexuality without having to, to fear the, the censoring coming from normativity, whether it is a state or a private company or industry. And I think that the answer to that is to maybe go back to something that is more local or to smaller visibilities that don't have to be threatened by a capitalist outcome of it, that doesn't have to rely on money, that doesn't have to rely on having possessions and popularity. Since recording that interview with us, Ezra deleted their OnlyFans account due to the problems they spoke about and focused more on their website at breakblowburn.com. We'll put a link in the episode notes because the web address includes numbers and letters. It's fun like that. Tash, what's next? 
logbook entries about people who are not born in Britain but are here, would like to stay and are looking for a mutually convenient arrangement to help them with that. But to close this episode, we wanted to give a special mention to the booksellers at Gaze the Word, who had the courage to stand up to the intimidation from the British state. It's a message that comes from all of us at the Logbooks and from Graham McCarrow. I'd really like to name the defendants because they never hesitated and they, right from the very first, they weren't prepared to put up with this. They fought it. The more they fought it, the more uh, customs hit back at them and they stood firm at every stage all the way through what must have been a very difficult, worrying time for them. So uh, they deserve recognition in no particular order, as they say. The late Dr Jonathan Cutbill, uh, Charles Brown, the late John Duncan, Leslie Jones, the late Port Hegarty, Peter Dory, Glenn McKee, Gerard Walsh and Amanda Russell. Everybody who wants to read any important material in this country or to feel that we deserve equality before the law owes these people a great debt of thanks. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like the Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the BFI National Archive, the folks at ACAST, MACE, the Media Archive for Central England, Peter Zaccaroli at West Digital, Content is Queen, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and all the contributors who shared their stories. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with your gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help. Thank you.